So over the next few weeks, uh, leading up to Easter, uh, we begin that celebration. I want us to take the time to talk about something that I feel like, you know, as Christians, we actually don't, we don't talk about that much. We might think about it, we might give it some lip service, but we don't really talk about it that much at how we deal with suffering as Christians. I think this matters a lot more than we might realize. And, you know, the way that we deal with pain, the way we deal with suffering, or just something bad happening, it tells a story about who we are. It tells a story about how we trust. It tells a story about who we trust. But this conversation, it's also missional in the fact that the way that we suffer as Christians, it's evangelistic. It's part of our historic Christian distinctiveness. It's one of the ways that we... uh, we show the world that Jesus is different and Jesus offers a different way. I'm calling this series How to Deal with a Painful Thing. Because I think we're all old enough to where we realize that you know, every now and then we're going to have painful things we have to deal with. How do we deal with that? And today, I want to also, it's, going to, it's going to serve as an introduction. But what I also want to do is I want to show a practical use case of the Psalms in suffering. The first time I fell in love with the Psalms and I began the practice of, of reading and praying the Psalms daily was oddly enough one of the first times as an adult that I dealt with an extended period, extended period of pain of a, of a bad thing. It's kind of weird to say this, but I can, I can almost say that suffering taught me to love the Psalms. And being in the Psalms daily, it helps us build up a reservoir of hope when things are good And then when things aren't good, we can drink from that reservoir that we have built up. Because suffering is not something to be avoided. In fact, suffering is something that Christians have actually almost welcomed throughout the age. Tim Keller, someone I've quoted quite often in the last few months, he says this in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. This is what it says. One of the main ways we move from an abstract knowledge about God to a personal encounter with Him as a living reality is through the furnace of affliction. Suffering is something that we as Christians welcome because it's when we're in these bottom places that we learn things about ourselves in a way that helps us give even more of ourselves over to God. As Jesus says, we have to lose ourselves to find ourselves. Now, our world, our culture tells us to do every single thing we can to prevent suffering. But Jesus tells us that it's inside of our suffering that we're often closest to God. So today we're going to walk through all of Psalm 31 as an introduction, but also just to build a baseline together of how we understand suffering as Christians, how we understand suffering and learn more about God, and also how we decide to live our life in the good times and in the bad times. So open your Bible to Psalm 31. We're going to have four different readings inside of it. But our first one is Psalm 31, verses 1 through 5. And you, O Lord, I seek refuge. Do not let me ever be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. You are indeed my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that is hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So where do we go when things seem to be at their lowest? 
know, really, that's the question that, that was the first thing in my notes when I began thinking about preaching this earlier in December. I just had that question inside of my notes. Where do we go when things seem to be at their lowest? Let me give you a moment just to think about that personally. Where do you go when things seem to be at their lowest? It can be a variety of places. It can be a variety of reactions or a variety of coping mechanisms that we all might have. But where do we go when we are at our lowest? The top of this psalm, you see, it's a a psalm of David. King David wrote this psalm. It might be easy for us to say, well, uh, it's easy to say these words when you're a king living in a palace with everything you might want at your fingertips. You know, kings seem to have it easy, right? They're living off the fat of the land. Every single thing they want. Wouldn't you love to be able to, like, snap a finger and have somebody come up to you and give you whatever you wanted? We have this idea. So King David, yeah, I get it. Yeah, it's easy to say, you know, uh, in you, O Lord, I seek refuge for uh, do not be put to shame. You're a king. What, What do you have to complain about? Most scholars would actually say that, um, King David uh, wrote this psalm when he was young in life. When he was fleeing from Saul, living in fear, hidden deep in caves, and and worried about his next meal or his next battle. we, We also know from Scripture that King David had by then already assembled a large group of warriors around him. They were fighting with him, but you know, you might, hey, when is the moment going to come when they think this isn't worth it? They might decide to take care of this one night while I'm asleep and they can get to go home, be in their own beds and with their own families. It puts things a little bit in perspective for us, doesn't it? David keeps repeating the term refuge, a place of safety. You know, depending on your translation, those five verses, he might talk about refuge three separate times. Refuge is a primary theme across the entire book of Psalms. It's a place of safety. Not a cave where David's at currently hiding out, but a stronghold, a fortress, a place in the midst of a, of, of, of a, of an, a not safe place where you find safety. The first thing David also worries about is shame. and In the ancient culture, shame was the worst thing. You did not want to be put to shame. But you know, shame, even in our world now, shame can be pretty powerful, right? We don't want to be shamed. Nobody wants to be shamed. And if you're in the middle of a tough spot, you know, what might be, you're, you're scared to go somewhere besides the grocery store. You don't want to log online and see if somebody might be talking about this thing on Facebook. You don't want to hear a knock at your door. You might not be wanting your phone to ring. And, and when that ping of a text message notification goes off, it kind of sends a little bit of a shudder down your spine. What else is going to happen? What else is going to happen? What, who, what, who, is some, who, is, who is saying something about me? We see all those emotions flood through these first words that David says to us. It's almost as though David is telling us in this psalm, hey, it's okay to not be at your best. There will be times when we're not at our best. It's okay. And it's okay to say that. 
All we want is a safe space. And David is here begging for God to be that safe space. It's easy for us to read this and also think that when we are in this place, all we want is attention from God or for God to storm in and take care of our enemies. We think David will be praying, hey, dear Lord, I know you love me. Can you take care of this Saul problem for me? I've done all the right things. Can you fix this for me now? That's how this relationship works, right? I do right things and you do things for me. But that's not what David says. To say the words that David says, they they assume relationship, that in the deep spaces God is with us. It's not about attention from God, but it's about the presence of God. We're not asking for God to simply agree, okay, yeah, I know, buddy, it's not that fun right now. I'll make it fun for you again. But we're asking for God to be with us right in the middle of where we are. He's in our mess with us. He's in the middle. He's stuck in the mud with us. We're asking for God to come alongside of us. Friends, let me get serious for a little bit. This is why our personal relationship with God matters. I know I talk constantly about daily scripture and daily prayer, daily time with God. But this matters so much in these scenarios because we need to have an an idea of this presence, an idea of this relationship with God prior to us needing to say this sort of prayer. The very last verse, uh, the very last uh, thing that Jesus said, quoted by Jesus on the cross, is from verse 5 of this psalm Into your hands I commit my spirit, for you have redeemed me, O Lord. O faithful God, you're, you're pulling that idea of time that we talk a lot about into this resume. I, I might be in a really, really bad spot right now, but I know I'm already redeemed. I know what you have already done, and that's what I'm, I'm choosing to live into with you. It's so when things are bad, when we have maybe walled ourselves up in the house for a couple of weeks, when we've tried to stay away from people and stay away from that sort of a thing, and all of a sudden that knock on the door comes, and we get over the, the nervousness of going and answering that door, and we realize that somebody we know, it's somebody we trust, somebody we love, so they come into the house, and we have to clear out a space for them. Like we've been on the couch for far too long. We've got to put the blankets back in the basket, get rid of the coffee cups or the water bottles, make, make a space for them to sit down. That's what we're doing for God. We're saying, Lord, let me me clear out a space for you to come in here and to be with me. Because I realize how valuable it is for you to be with me. Verses 9 through 10. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes waste away from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my misery. Have you ever felt that before? You're so sad you feel like you can't do anything. And my bones waste away. What I love about this psalm is it it speaks to the physical agony of emotional distress. It, it, It lets us know this is okay. This is what this feels like because this is what this feels like. These two verses are heavy because it's about a total emptying of ourself, but it's also an awareness of our emptiness. It's a confession that's necessary in that moment, in that space, for that thing, in order for us to create that unique space in the midst of suffering. For us to clear out that spot on the couch, to let God come in, find us, and bring us what He knows we need. Not what we think we need, but what God knows we need. You know, many times we can fall into the temptation of our our modern world culture around us 
Dear Lord, please eliminate this suffering for me. Like I said earlier, our world says that suffering should not be present. That anytime suffering happens, it is evil. That we should absolutely go against rapidly those people or those things that are causing the suffering. This is a very, it's a reversal of this. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark. He said, my soul is overwhelmed even to the point of death. It's a radical moment. It's an experience of emptying that we have to realize that we have to stop just wanting our suffering to be over. Instead, we invite the presence of God for the action of rewiring us in order to create an even greater experience of trust with Him. But here's the thing. This isn't us losing ourselves. This is us finding ourselves. That we're, and I, This is what I love about this idea. We're not just a bag of flesh, as one writer said. But we realize there's a deep and interconnected relationship between our physical experience, our emotional experience, our relational experience, that all of our life wraps together is the soul that Jesus has chosen to save. They're interconnected, and, and part of the healing process is a healing of our emotions. I feel like also just to kind of come in and say this, you know, a lot of times when I talk with folks about this, I kind of tell them quickly, like, listen, I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not that trained in counseling. We'll talk a little bit, but at the very end of that conversation, one of the things I'm going to tell you is, hey, you need to go find a therapist. Go find someone. I, I, I made the joke, like, I, I can read three dead languages, I've got 118 hours of graduate studies. Three of those hours were in counseling. What they taught me was go see a therapist. We kind of eliminate the stigma of therapy in this moment and say absolutely go see somebody to help heal the emotional process. I refer to it often in those scenarios, especially with men. Men really don't like to go talk to somebody. It's like, it's like, it's like getting your oil changed. Because if you don't get your oil changed, your, your engine's going to blow up. So go get your oil changed. Many times we begin the passage to move through suffering, and we have to have that emptiness to help us to realize that we are outside of our own power and we actually do need people around us, but especially we need God around us in that moment. Verse 14 through 15. Imagine this as if we're, if we're running a mile on a high school track, we're in the third corner now. Verse 14 and 15. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies and persecutors. It's another place of transition. It's a permanent state that we choose to take. I trust in you, God. No matter what, I trust in you. I think more and more as I read Scripture, I think that trust is the primary component of our faith. It's so simple, we don't realize how important it is. And we learn trust not just once in life, but we learn trust every single time we engage with God. You know, we realize in this moment the suffering will probably go away, but the experience of the suffering can stay with us. This is where Jesus does the Jesus things that heal us. Five years ago, this month, uh, some of y'all know this, but uh, um, I, I refer to it as my party trick. Uh, it's when I went to the doctor thinking I had bronchitis, and I walked out of the doctor's office finding I had a stage four heart failure diagnosis. Got a nine-day vacation, I think, in, in St. Francis Hospital. 
Seven of those nine days were in an all-inclusive resort known as the intensive care unit. I was the only person that could talk. Everybody else there was like, like, like under medicine. I was the only one that could talk. I, I impressed the nurses how I could tell what season of Law & Order SVU it was based off of Olivia's haircut. But I came out of that, and then I spent, like, I think, a month at home. I took a month off of work because the doctor was like, you've got to reset some things. And so I spent a month in sweatpants. I had, to, I had to learn how to, to eat very, very differently. I had to learn to start taking all these medicines. Before that, it was just a BC powder every now and then. But it was also one of the most spiritually formative times in my life. A couple of days ago, I went and dug through the box that has all of my old journals. I went and found out the journal from that season and was flipping through it and realizing when we know we're at our lowest, the degree to which we are willing to open ourselves up to God Inside of that lotus, specifically as possible, is the degree to which we will experience the level of healing, physical, emotional, the whole nine yards that we have. And it's trust that makes that happen. Trust is the vehicle of that experience. Friends, I'm not as old as you are, but I've had a handful of really nasty, terrible seasons of life. And the difference that changes as I go through, the older I get is the more I realize there's power to, re, to pause, to realize this, something's happening, to not rush through this and to instead seek the presence of God to teach me the lessons I need to learn in the middle of this. Sometimes it means is owning up to the complicity we might have in the problem, especially if it's relational. But saying, God, I'm, I'm not going to rush through this because I know there's something you might be trying to do inside of this and I trust you, so I welcome you here. I want to let this transformation take place. Friends, if we don't let go and we don't start trusting, we're going to struggle to find out what we need to know. What we hear David saying here in this psalm is that he's realizing that the transformation is happening. He's in the middle of this transformation. And the transformation begins through a journey of trust. And so now we come to the, the final curve in the lap we are taking today. Verse 16. Let your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. This is the big thing, and I'm going to avoid the temptation to go too deep into this. I'm going to tell you we'll hold that off until Good Friday. But this is a fantastic time and a way for us to get around the cultural temptation of simply doing anything to avoid suffering and trying to get out of suffering as quickly as possible. In short, Christianity offers a greater basis of hope. A few reasons why, a few steps towards it. Number one, we don't argue that suffering doesn't exist. It does. Suffering is absolutely a real thing. And you can also be suffering when other people might not realize that you are suffering. When we as Christians see suffering as not just a part of the human life, but it is an expected part of the human life, rather than simply discarding it and expecting others to eradicate the environment that it's causing us to suffer in the moment. We don't cast off blame. We don't react angrily or violently. We don't accuse others of things. We don't put blame off. We just say, I'm in the middle of something really tough right now, and I'm not going to get rid of that. I'm going to move through this with God. The second thing is that we don't try to just manage our suffering or cope with our suffering. We know suffering is real, so we know we will go through suffering. We don't think life will be lived 100% absent of suffering and then get mad at others when we encounter it. As Tim Keller says, I love this, y'all. And I think especially in our world now, 
If you, if you have the news turned on a little bit too much, I think this is important to hear. As Christians, we are not outraged by our miseries. We trust in God. We don't manage, cope, or deflect, but we trust in God. And the third thing is this, and this is kind of the, this, the same, it runs the, a, a line from the Keller quote. Admitting suffering is real allows us to minimize inconvenience. Do y'all ever watch, I, I, y'all, it's in my algorithm right now on Instagram and TikTok, and I kind of enjoy it a little bit too much, but do y'all ever watch those videos on the internet of when people freak out at a fast food restaurant and get mad at the employees? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I kind of like them a little bit too much, maybe. Y'all might be aware of, uh, in our world, we have a name for people who do this. We call them Karens. Yes. And the male counterpart of this, sadly, sometimes is called a Chad. <laughs> but when we approach suffering as Christians, especially those minor inconveniences that really aren't that real big of a deal, it lets us separate what's simply inconvenient and then also the part of life that is true suffering. Culture's approach to suffering. It's just too simple. They say it doesn't exist, so if it does, I'm going to just ramp up to 100% instantly. Culture around us, reaction to suffering is reductionistic. It says, oh, it doesn't really exist. Or I, I shouldn't be. I'm, I, 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 this is for other people, not for me. Or they'll say something that suffering is a half-truth. We'll try to say something. Don't tell somebody it's not really that bad. Quit. Just get over it. You know, my generation's version of that was, and, and there's, it's funny because psychologists now are trying to link this uh, with something, but like the idea of, you know, they're starving children in Ethiopia, so make sure you clean your plate. And then talking about how there's now a, a line of emotional of eating disorders now because the entire generation was just programmed to eat everything before them. You know, there's a half truth of suffering sometimes. Hey, it could be worse for you, so just get better. You know, when you're suffering and somebody just tells you to get over it, you kind of want to hit them, don't you? We can talk about it. We can talk about it here. I told y'all, this is really, really important, but we never talk about it. The example of Jesus Christ and the whole breadth of Scripture speak deeper into the reality of suffering than our world does. I'll bank on Jesus. I've learned it the hard way, but I'll bank on Jesus. You know, this whole um, just verse we read, it can be summarized with this simple statement. Psalm 31.16 isn't saying, Jesus, take away this thing but Lord, be bigger than my problems, wherever they are. Lord, be bigger. Three little words. I, I, I had it for a while. I had that on a post-it note on my computer. Lord, be bigger. Lord, be bigger. I'm, I'm going to end today with the final verse from Psalm 31 because honestly, nothing says it better. But be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Let us pray together today, friends. Father, every one of us has suffered.